You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at Redeemer Bible Church. The text for this morning's sermon is Mark 10, verses 13 to 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word this morning, and uh, we need to hear from you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would attend to the preaching of the word, that you would give us eyes to see what we have perhaps never seen before, but that you would give all of us hearts to receive everything you say to us. 
So what we ask for, we cannot accomplish on our own, in our own strength. And so we cry out to you, O triune God, do what only you can do. Do it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine two similar but very different scenarios with me this morning. Uh, Here's the first. You're at a beautiful park with lots of trees, and you have the incredible privilege of hanging out with Pastor Aaron White, Pastor Jason Harrison, and their families. At some point during your time together, you notice that four-year-old Ezra White is stuck in a tree. And Aaron, as a loving father, immediately goes to help him. In this particular scenario, the only way out of the tree is for Ezra to jump into his father's arms. And so you watch. You've seen Aaron try to catch a ball before. So things are tense. As Aaron tries to calm his son down, as Ezra battles fear and anxiety, you watch. And after a few minutes, you witness something wonderful. A son jumps into the safe and steady arms of his father. All is well. Now here's the second scenario. Again, you're at a beautiful park with lots of trees, and you have the incredible privilege of hanging out with Pastor Aaron White, Pastor Jason Harrison, and their families. At some point during your time together, you notice that 42-year-old Aaron White is stuck in a tree. (laughs) In this case, his loving co-worker, Jason Harrison, immediately goes to help him. Again, for whatever reason, in my made-up scenario, the only way out of the tree is for Aaron White to jump into Jason Harrison's strong and steady arms. Take a moment and really picture this. If you're a young person who draws pictures of things I say when I'm preaching, please draw a picture of this. So there you are, watching. Watching as Jason tries to calm Aaron down, As Aaron battles fear and anxiety, you and everyone else there is wondering the same thing. What's going to happen? Now, what's one major difference between the two scenarios I presented you with? In the first, there's a son who has learned over the first four years of his life that his father can be trusted completely. In the second, you have two friends. Two friends who have spent the last three and a half years pranking each other with such regularity and to such an extent that if Aaron's only option to get out of the tree is to trust Jason, then there's a distinct possibility Aaron will live out the remainder of his days in the tree. (laughs) In scenario number one, we see the total dependence of a child who jumps into his father's waiting arms. And in scenario number two, you have someone who counts the cost and decides it's probably not worth it to take the leap of faith. 
Friends, while the examples I just gave you are lighthearted and humorous, what we find in our text this morning is not. In Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31, we encounter a text that is profoundly instructive. It is equal parts encouraging and heartbreaking. It will lay before us the difference between one who enters the kingdom of God by faith and one who walks away from the kingdom because the price is too high. At its heart, this is a text about following Christ. What does it mean to truly follow Christ? Because the answer to this question is the difference between eternal life and everlasting judgment. So here's what I want you to see this morning. First, the simplicity of following Jesus. Then the difficulty of following Jesus. Finally, the beauty of following Jesus. First, the simplicity of following Jesus. We find this in verses 13 through 16. As Jesus continued to move throughout his earthly ministry, Mark tells us that children were being brought to him. Now, we don't know exactly who is bringing these children to Jesus. I think it's safe to assume that parents are bringing their children to a well-known rabbi wanting him to bless them. They knew there was something different about this teacher. His posture toward the last and the least was different than the Pharisees, to be sure. Remember what took place back in chapter 9, verses 36 and 37, when Jesus was gathered with his disciples. Mark records, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Perhaps it was Jesus' growing reputation as one who loved children in the midst of a culture that largely despised them. Maybe this served as an invitation to parents. Bring your children to Jesus. So they did. Notice the beginning of verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. One commentator explains what's happening here. Notice they wanted Jesus to touch the child. Jesus did everything by touching. He healed with a touch. He touched people all the time, which is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes never did. They wouldn't touch people because they would be defiled. Here was Jesus compassionate and tender. So the purpose in bringing them was that he might touch them because that's what fathers did. They laid their hands on the child and the elders laid their hands on the child as the patriarchs had done and then they prayed a blessing. Something like what you saw this morning. Friends, what a glorious scene this is. Jesus, again, sets himself apart from all the religious leaders of the day. There is a grace and tenderness and 
kindness in Jesus that invites the hurting, the weak, the vulnerable, the outcast, the sinner, the little child. Jesus invites them all to come to him. He did this during his earthly ministry, and he still does this, doesn't he? Now, how do the disciples respond to this glorious scene? Look at the end of verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. Seriously? Let's make sure we're fully understanding what's taking place here. The disciples of Jesus, those who've witnessed nearly everything he's done, those who've walked with him and eaten meals with him and listened to countless hours of his teaching, the very same men who watched him pull a child close and say, as we just read, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. These very same men are now rebuking parents for bringing their children to Jesus. And maybe you're wondering if if this is just a misunderstanding by the disciples. Maybe they thought this is what Jesus wanted. Well, notice Jesus' response in verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. This is the only time Jesus is said to be indignant. He is experiencing a perfectly righteous anger over the actions of the disciples. He's deeply disappointed in what they've done. What what they've just done is so antithetical to everything Jesus has been teaching and doing. The disciples need to be strongly corrected, but the people present also need to hear this correction, don't they? Uh, Why? Because what's just happened isn't, isn't simply about an innocent mistake the disciples have made. The error is far more serious. They, they have both confused the heart of Christ and they've confused the nature of saving faith. So Jesus immediately clarifies both of these matters when he says to them midway through verse 14... Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus' response can be confusing if we're not Careful. So let me give you two quick observations from verses 14 through 16. Observation number one, Jesus is not declaring that all children will be saved, but he is making it clear that he loves actual children and invites them to come to him in faith. Again, in a culture that despised children, Jesus announced that he values them and he welcomes them into his kingdom if they, like anyone else, will come to him in repentance and faith. 
Brothers and sisters, I hope, I hope we reflect our Savior in this way. I hope we are committed to passionately and consistently teaching our children the gospel, believing that Jesus loves them and can give them new life, even at a young age. Observation number two. While Jesus is affirming that actual children can be received into the kingdom by faith, his greater point is that everyone who is received into the kingdom must come like a child. This is what Jesus means when he refers to receiving the kingdom like a child. Don't miss what he says. If you don't receive the kingdom like a child, you won't get the kingdom at all. What does it mean to come to Jesus like a child? Two words come to mind. The word dependent and the word expectant. A child is totally dependent. We know this, but even think about the first example I gave earlier. If a four-year-old boy is stuck in a tree, there, there is nothing he can do to save himself. He's totally dependent upon another, someone who can do for him what he cannot do for himself. But again, a child is not only dependent, but expectant. There's something wonderful about a child the night before their birthday or before Christmas. There is an expectant excitement that is unique to children. If your family tradition is to open presents early Christmas morning and you have young children in your home, I'll, I'll bet you've never had to drag them out of bed on Christmas morning. They aren't asking you to hit the snooze button. You see, there is nothing reluctant or reserved about children on Christmas morning ready to receive a gift. This, this is how every sinner must come to Jesus. In total dependence, with no reluctance or reservation, this is a picture of humble trust and hopeful faith. To come to Jesus like a child is to come open-handed, receiving from him what you do not deserve and you could never earn, the gift of eternal life. There is an undeniable simplicity to following Jesus. Again, you, you cannot earn the kingdom and you could never deserve the kingdom, but you can receive it. You can receive it by coming like a child in humble trust and hopeful faith. Turn from your sin, dear friend, and in total dependence, believe in Jesus. I hope someone does this this morning. The simplicity of following 
Jesus. Look with me now at the difficulty of following Jesus. We find this in verses 17 through 22. After he corrects the disciples and blesses the children, Jesus and his disciples set out on their way, and in typical Mark fashion, something immediately happens. Look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The most obvious and immediate question we all have, who is this man who runs up to Jesus? Well, in Mark's account of the story, we really only find out one thing about him. He's rich. Rich meant the same thing in Jesus' day as it does now. It means you have a lot of money and a lot of stuff you can buy with a lot of money. This man was rich. In, in Luke's account, he is also referred to as a ruler. So he is likely a man of both wealth and influence. Now notice that in verse 17, this wealthy man asks the right question to the right person. Seems reasonable to conclude that this man was familiar with the teaching of Jesus. Perhaps he had been part of the crowd in other places, and this is his chance to ask the question he's been curious about. He sees an opening and he takes it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, he has come to the right person. And he is certainly asking the right question. Jesus' initial response can sound a little odd to us. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You might be wondering, Jesus, what difference does it make that he called you a good teacher? What about his question? Now, there are lots of different theories about how we should understand Jesus' response here. This is what I believe Jesus is saying. Remember, the only thing we really know about this man is that he's very rich. I think that clear fact should be our chief clue. When he refers to Jesus as a good teacher... This rich man is using flattery to gain leverage in what he sees as a negotiation. Now, I, I don't think this means that we're to understand this man to be a, a devious character, out to do something heinous or reprehensible. No, this would have been a very natural way for him to interact with someone who has something he wants. One commentator says it plainly. This is simply how he has come to navigate his way through the world. When Jesus responds to the man, why do you call me good? He is dismissing his flattery because worldly wealth is of no advantage to Jesus or to the one seeking entrance into his kingdom. It's as if Jesus is asking the man, What's your agenda? Why do you feel it necessary to approach me in this way? So first, Jesus dismisses his flattery. That will get him nowhere. 
Now, look what Jesus does next. He dismisses his religious activity. Something else that won't get the man anywhere with Jesus or any closer to his kingdom. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Again, Jesus first dismissed this man's flattery because worldly wealth is of no advantage to the one seeking eternal life. Now Jesus dismisses his religious activity because religious activity, no matter how consistent or commendable, will not gain you the gift of eternal life. Friends, do you see what's happening with this man? Is he coming to Jesus like a child? Empty-handed, in humble trust and hopeful faith? Is he coming in total dependence upon Jesus to do for him what he cannot do for himself? Well, the answer is tragically no. Look now at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't this interesting? Mark tells us that Jesus loved this man. While he dismisses his flattery and his religious activity, he is not disgusted by this man. No, this man is lost. And Jesus has deep compassion for the lost. I think this is very instructive for us. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. In his love, Jesus doesn't remove the demands of the gospel, but he speaks the truth to this one who is lost. This is what real love looks like. Consider your own relationships. If you are neglecting to speak the truth to the one in your life who is lost in their sin, this is not love. My plea to you today is that you will love your lost friends and family members enough to give them the undiluted gospel. Don't be a jerk, but speak the truth. This is what Jesus does in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Do you remember what happened earlier in this conversation between Jesus and the rich man? The rich man claimed faithful obedience to what amounts to be the second half of the Ten Commandments. In verse 21, it's like Jesus says to this young man, okay, we've covered the last several commandments. But let's go back to the first. Look at 
you shall have no other gods before me. One commentator writes, what if this man's money was all gone and everything that comes with it, respect, admiration, mansions, servants, freedom to do whatever he wants? Will he give it up to follow Jesus? Or has money become his God? Friends, in a slightly different sense than it's used in the song we sang earlier, this rich man is being asked the same question about Jesus. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And as he contemplates this most important question, he considers Jesus, and then he compares Jesus to his riches. It's the eternal worth of Christ versus the temporal worth of a huge pile of cash and everything it can buy. That's his decision. And in the end, this wealthy man hears the question about Jesus, is he worthy? And his answer is no. His answer is no. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Think about this. It was easier for the rich man to think about eternity without Jesus than it was for him to think about his life without money. In this, he revealed his greatest love. He revealed the object of his worship, and it wasn't Jesus. I have to believe there is someone here this morning who's just like this rich man. You're, you're asking all the right questions, and you're, you're living an upright life, but in the end, you're unwilling to come to Jesus like a child. There is something, there is something you love so much that you'd rather miss out on Jesus than abandon everything for Jesus. Oh, friend, if that's you, let it all go. Let it all go and lay hold of Christ by faith. Receive what can never fade away or, or be taken away. Eternal life and everlasting joy in the presence of the one who has clothed you in his perfect righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the simplicity of following Jesus, the, the difficulty of following Jesus. Finally, the beauty of following Jesus. We find this in verses 23 through 31. Now, when I say beauty, I mean to emphasize the benefit and blessing, the supernatural attraction and appeal of following Jesus. Look with me at verse 23. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? This is yet another instance where we find the disciples struggling to understand Jesus, slow to believe what he is teaching them. He's he's basically giving them a framework to understand what just took place with the rich man. In the disciples' thinking, which would have been very common at this time, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. In other words, earthly riches seemed to be certain evidence that someone was in the kingdom. But now Jesus is saying this isn't the case at all. In fact, he doesn't just say that it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. He says it's impossible. That's the point of the camel and the needle example. There is no obscure or fanciful meaning behind the following statement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about a literal camel, a big hairy beast with giant humps, and a literal needle, a tiny pointy utensil with a minuscule hole just larger than a thread. It would be easier to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Why? Because wealth, perhaps more than anything else, can keep someone from childlike faith, from total dependence, from coming empty-handed to the Lord in complete trust. Wealth can be a great gift but it's a terrible God. You see, when you have everything you want, it's very difficult to see yourself as needy. And only the needy come to Jesus in desperation and dependence. Notice again the disciples' response to Jesus' shocking claim, verse 26. Then who can be saved? there's a real sense in which that's a really fair question. Given what they've just heard from Jesus, look at Jesus' response in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Let me pull together a few loose ends in an effort to make sense of Jesus' statement in verse 27. How is it, how is it that someone becomes a child, spiritually speaking? Is it by an act of their own will? Is it the result of trying hard enough for long enough? Can you do this with enough effort, muster up childlike faith? Well, friends, if, if this is how entrance into the kingdom of heaven worked, well, no one would ever get in. If it were entirely up to you, 
no one would ever get in. One pastor writes, the rich young man could not make himself a dependent child. Nothing he could do could fit him through the entrance to the kingdom. He was wrong to think that his moral attainments would be enough. The disciples' question remains, who who can be saved? And here's the answer. Anyone. Anyone could be saved. Whether a child or a rich young ruler, anyone can be saved, but it requires a miracle. Something only God can do. You, you see, for anyone to come to Christ in faith, rich or poor, young or old, they must first be acted upon by the one who can give sight to the blind, who can heal the sick, who can calm the storm, who can conquer sin and defeat death. Only he can make someone like a child. And friends, if he did that, what would it look like? Well, it would look like the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. While becoming like a child requires a divine miracle, this does not remove the responsibility each and every person has to respond to Christ in faith. This is why Jesus said to the rich man exactly what he said to the disciples. Come, follow me. In one case, those who heard his call said yes, and in the other case, the answer was no. When the rich man was faced with the question about Jesus, is he worthy, he sadly answered no. answered no because he wasn't willing to give up his earthly wealth. But in clinging to his earthly wealth, he gave up Christ and all the eternal treasures of heaven. The disciples, on the other hand, when faced with the very same question about Jesus, is he worthy? Well, they answered yes. And in answering yes, they left everything and followed Jesus. It, it appeared to anyone watching that when the disciples said yes to Jesus, they became poor. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. When you come to Jesus in total dependence and childlike faith with empty hands, you not only receive Christ, but you receive a new family 
and an eternal home. That's what's being emphasized in, in verse 31, or 30 and 31. These are the riches of heaven, and they will never pass away. We're meant to look at the rich man and respond, I think, with compassion as Jesus did, but also to conclude, what a foolish decision. I want to close this morning with the words of a former seminary professor who, who said this when he concluded his own sermon on this very same text. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine life without money. All you have is me. Am I really enough? Do you truly believe the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything? That is the question Jesus puts before this man. It is the same question he puts before each of us. So how will we, will we respond? Is he worthy? There's only one right answer. He is. Let's pray.